0: Would you turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 1? That's the last book of the Bible. Revelation chapter 1. If you're visiting with us this morning, I want to welcome you to this Resurrection Sunday. I like to call it that. don't necessarily don't like Easter. I just like to call it what it is. This is the Sunday. We celebrate that Christ rose from the dead on the third day. So I want to praise God for the resurrection of Christ. And so I'm going to preach from Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 18. And we're going to look at the life of the apostle of love. And that was the apostle John. I think this text of scripture illustrates that a believer in Christ must not fear death, that a believer in Christ has nothing to fear because Jesus is the Lord who loves you and has secured victory over death for you. So I put up on the screen what I really believe this text of scripture and what the sermon is going to be about, and that is that you must not fear because Jesus is the Lord who loved you by securing victory over death. The book of Revelation was written again by the Apostle John when he was exiled on the island of Patmos. The island of Patmos was for criminals. It was for convicts. At the time of Revelation chapter 1, John would have been in his late 80s, possibly early 90s. This was written in the year 95 or around the year 95 AD. These events took place in Revelation 1. These events took place 65 or so years after Christ's resurrection. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to picture this older apostle, the apostle John as he's on this island, as he's meeting with the Lord Jesus Christ. The Isle of Patmos was a small Greek island. It was basically a a lump of volcanic rock in the Mediterranean Sea. Church tradition informs us that emperor, dominion, persecuted Christians, and he tried to execute the apostle John for his faith in Christ by boiling him alive in a vat of oil, but that did not kill him. And since that didn't work, the emperor exiled him to an island for criminals. And most prisoners on that island either died of exposure to the sun, of starvation, or from abuse of other criminals. And this is the setting of Revelation chapter 1 And it takes place on a Sunday. Look at Revelation 1, verse number 9. John writes, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, in the kingdom, in the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Just pause there and imagine what's taking place in these two verses. It's the Lord's day. What day is the Lord's day? That's Sunday. That's the day the church gathers together And we remember and praise God for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you realize that every Sunday is a resurrection Sunday? But of course, today is a special time we set aside to remember that it happened on a particular day. Christ rose from the dead on a particular day. So this is resurrection Sunday. Maybe not this Sunday, but it was a regular Sunday to worship Christ The Apostle John set himself aside to worship the Lord, but he wasn't with the church, was he? He was alone on an island. Picture that elderly Apostle as his aged legs kneel down before the Lord. Imagine his worn hands as they're lifted in praise to Christ. Consider his empty belly as it growls for food. Consider his body that had pain, the pain of years of persecution. Think about his emotions as he's alone. All the other apostles have now already been executed, martyred, and there he is. He's lost his friends. He's on his own on this island. Or is he on his own? He's in the spirit. That Holy Spirit is the spirit of Christ. So he believes Christ is with him. And then to his surprise, he hears the very voice of Christ. His voice, the voice of Christ sounded forth like a pure, rich trumpet. So John turned and there before him standing there was the risen Christ. Jesus' hair beamed with the lightest white that man could ever view. His face illuminated brighter than the sun. He wore priestly garbs, priestly robes that radiated with the bright golden sash across it. His eyes shone like a blazing fire and when he spoke it was so powerful it was like millions of gallons of water were cascading over a waterfall and his words pierced the soul of John they were so powerful so contrast the the brown dirty volcanic island and the apostle paul or apostle john is looking upon the glory The pureness, the holiness of the risen Christ. And notice how he responded. Look at verse number 12. Verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man. Clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head were white like wool, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, uh, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand, he held seven stars, From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And so John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I mean, this is such a powerful picture that he's trying to use imagery to describe this, this shocking picture. But really his response here is he falls down like he's a dead man. I mean, his body doesn't work. Nothing works. He just completely collapses. Why? Because he saw the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What John experienced here is what Moses had experienced when he stood before the burning bush. Remember that in Exodus chapter number three, the pre-incarnate Christ spoke to Moses from that burning bush and that burning light. That glory was so radiant, so holy. The Bible says in Exodus 3, 6, Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. So Moses' response to the glory of God was, fear, and falling down. Isaiah responded with a similar reaction when he saw the pre-incarnate Christ in the heavenly temple in Isaiah chapter six. And remember that scene where he's able to see the heavenly temple and there is the king of kings, the pre-incarnate Christ on his throne. And around that throne are these angels, these seraphim on fire. And all they do is cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. And how did Isaiah respond to that? He responded in fear, Isaiah 6, 5. And he said, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. He's saying, I'm a sinner. I fall short of God's glory. This is how Daniel responded when he had a vision of the pre-incarnate Christ. In Daniel chapter number 10, the Bible says in Daniel 10 that he said, I turned my face toward the ground and became speechless. He was gripped. Daniel was gripped with fear when he saw the glorious pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. And that's how sinful human, sinful humans respond when they see, when they behold the glory of God. God's glory is like the, the brightest spotlight in the world shining directly into your eyes. You can't help but turn away. It's going to cause your eyes to be incapacitated. It's going to blind you. The glory of God, the purity of Christ, the holiness and righteousness of the Lord causes the sinner's soul to be in dread. It causes us to be incapacitated. The correct response to God's holiness and his righteousness is actually fear. If Christ were to appear before us right now in all his glory, every one of us in this room would fall down before Christ in fear. Fear is the appropriate response to one who stands before a just judge, to a sinner who stands before a just judge. Why is that? Because each one of us is guilty before God. Fear is the response, the correct response of a criminal. He's caught by the police. Fear is the correct response by you when you're going 20 or 30 or 40 miles an hour over the speed limit and you get pulled over. Fear is the correct response when a sinner stands before the Holy God. In Revelation 1, John is struck by the reality that Jesus is the Holy God, so he he dropped down like he was dead. He didn't actually die. But his body lost all control. He was so overwhelmed with the purity of Christ in contrast to his fleshly sinful humanity. So instantly he had great fear. And what was he afraid of? I mean, what was Isaiah afraid of? And Moses and Daniel and John here? What are they afraid of? Well, it was the fear of righteous judgment, of justice the fear that a holy God would cast them in an instant into hell. They feared immediate death and eternal damnation. And why is that? Because we deserve that. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, don't fear man. Don't fear people. Like a lot of people live in this life so concerned what other people think about them. They're controlled by the fear of people Their reputation, the opinions of other people, being liked by other people, fitting in. He says, don't fear people. Jesus said, Matthew 28, 20, Matthew 10, 28, rather fear him that is God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. We are all sinners before the holy God and the thought of God's holiness should cause every sinner to fall before the Lord in fear. It was said that William Randolph Hearst was extremely afraid of death. Maybe you've gone up to the Hearst mansion in California. You've seen that. That was owned by this man, William Randolph Hearst. He was one of the wealthiest and most powerful men in man in the 20th century. He had a media career and was worth over $500 million, which back then, that was worth a lot of money. Today it's seeming less and less like a millionaire, Is that rich, right? (laughs) Although 500 million is still pretty good. But he's said to have invited celebrities here from Hollywood up there, and he had one rule, probably had more than one, but one very important rule, and that was, If you came to his estate, you swam in his pool, stayed in his mansion, you could not mention death. He was extremely afraid of death. On August 14th, 1951, there was a knock on the door of his soul and death came knocking and his soul went into eternity. You see, friend, every person in this room, there will be a day when death comes knocking on your soul and it will take you into eternity. And if you are without Christ, if you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you should fear death. Because without Christ, your soul will perish for eternity. However, what's interesting is you read the story of Moses and Isaiah, and Daniel, and then here of John, they were all commanded not to fear. So that's a question, why? If a fear is appropriate response before a holy God, why were they commanded not to fear? What was the basis of saying to them, do not fear? Well, fear wasn't based upon who Moses was. I mean, Moses, he killed a guy, right? In anger. Moses had an anger problem. Not fearing was not the basis for John's character. I mean, the apostle John, he was a son of thunder. He was many times prideful. He definitely was not without sin. See, the fear wasn't to go away because John was a good person or John was a a great apostle. That's the deception, I think, that people believe. They, They think that when I go to glory, and I stand before Jesus, I will say, here's all the good things I did, and this is why I should get into heaven. Or or forgiveness is based upon maybe some of the good things I do, and maybe some of the things Jesus does too. The Pope, a number of years ago, described getting to heaven like an airplane. He said, one wing is your works and what you do, and the other wing is Christ and his work for you. And I was thinking about that illustration, how ridiculous that was. Thinking, would you ever get in the plane where you have one wing that's perfect and the other what you hope is gonna make it? It's dilapidated, but it might be good enough. Nobody would. Right? Because actually, faith in Christ is that Jesus is the plane, right? We do nothing. We get on, we trust him completely. And so this idea that, well, well, I don't have to fear because I look to myself. I'm a pretty good person. I think I've done pretty well in life. I, I try to be good enough for God, I'm pretty religious. No. John was not told to fear because he was a good person. He was saying, don't fear because notice who Jesus is. Look to what Jesus has done. The reason John did not need to fear was because of his relationship with Jesus Christ and who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Notice that in verse 17. When I saw him, so John sees Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. John was commanded not to fear. Why? Why should he not fear here? Because Jesus is the Lord. He's the Lord who loved John. He's the Lord who loves us. And he's the Lord who secured victory over death. Notice in verse 17, the love of Christ for John. I mean, here is John shaking in fear. In fact, that word fear not is the idea that this was something that was taking place as Jesus was speaking to him. This means that John was still shaking in fear when Jesus put his hand upon John. Think of that hand. Think of that touch of grace and of love. It's it's a touch that says, I'm the good shepherd. You're the sheep. You're mine. I love you. I, I lay my life down for the sheep. I took my life back again, and here I am, and you're mine. It was a touch of love. Here we have John, the apostle of love. John was consumed with the love of God. If you read the Gospel of John and the three epistles of John, you will see over 80 times in the Gospels and the epistles that John wrote about love, the love of God, the love we are to have for one another. It was John who wrote John three sixteen: for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It was John who recalled the words of Jesus at that last meal in John 15, 9, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Remain in my love. It was John who wrote in 1 John 4:9, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. This is how God showed his love that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. And even in his old age here, John never got over the love of God for him. The love that Jesus had for him as well. How do you know that? You say, Pastor Ben, how do you see that here? Well, go up to Revelation 1.5. You see, because John starts off this letter recalling the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Look at Revelation 1.5. He says, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. That's the first one to rise again. And the ruler of kings on earth. He's the king of kings. Notice what he says. To him who, what's the next word? Loves us. He loves us. And how did he show his love? He has freed us from our sins, by his blood. Yes, my friend, John believed Jesus loved him, and Jesus proved it on the cross when he suffered for John's sins and for our sins. Do you believe that God loves you? When we were down in Honduras this past week, on Thursday, we went to a church that was Seemingly in the middle of nowhere. It was very, very hot there. We had a service in the morning. Well, I guess it was around 1130. And as we went there, I mean, we had to take this van to get there and walk a little bit. And it was, it was rocky. It took a long time to get there. There are a lot of people very impoverished there. The individuals for Good Samaritan told us, the ones who were in charge, told us that this is a very depressed area. There's not a lot of jobs. There's a lot of drinking. Gangs are starting to take over. This pastor and his wife have been there for 10 years. And as I stood in front of the congregation, honestly, I looked at people and I saw people that were believers. There were lots of children, not a lot of men, but I saw women and some men. And I looked out and I was thinking as I was preaching, do these these people look at me and, and wonder if God loves me more? You know, I mean, here are the the fat American coming in, plump, whatever I am. And, you know, all of us Americans, and you have kids who are not having meals throughout the week. You have people who are wondering if they're going to survive until next year. And as I was speaking to them, this was Thursday. The next day was Good Friday. I was speaking on the death of Christ, and I told them to ask them that question, does God love you? And what's the answer to that? Yes. Well, how do you know that? When you look around like that, how do you know that? So, see, I might ask you that question, does God love you? You might say, well, I got a lot of bad things in my life. Well, first of all, I don't think you have it as bad as them, okay? When in Honduras, that was pretty, pretty sad. But, but how, do, how do those people know that God loves them? How do you know that God loves him? Look, look at the cross, Think about Jesus as he hung there on that cross. Jesus hung on that cross because of love. He didn't have vengeance in his heart. Even as people were mocking him and in deriding him, Jesus prayed for them. And friends, John was convinced of the love of Christ for him. But notice, it's interesting how in the same chapter that you see that Jesus loved John. He loved us. You also see John fearing Jesus. How do these go together? How do you reconcile fear of Jesus, but also the love Jesus has for us? Well, I think you reconcile it like this. The holiness of Jesus causes the sinner to fear, but that same holiness transforms The sinner's heart to be a saint. Because the Holy One, that's Jesus, went on that cross. And when he died, he died in our place. When he died, he took our sin upon himself. He he experienced the wrath of God for our sin upon him. When he died on that cross, he died as the Holy One. And he rose again. And he, the Holy One, gifts us with his holiness. In other words, he makes the sinner a saint. That's a holy one. He gives us his righteousness. And so fear flees in the presence of faith in Jesus Christ, of who he is and what he has done for us. And we no longer need to fear death. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and you think about that last day when you're going to close your eyes and you're going to take your last breath, you don't have to fear because Jesus has touched your soul with his redemptive love. When you believed in Jesus, the scripture says that he resurrected your dead soul to come to life. And he did it because of love. Ephesians chapter two, verse four, God is rich in mercy. God is rich in mercy Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when you were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. In other words, your soul was spiritually dead and he touched your soul and brought it to life and he did it because he loves you. And after our bodies die, he will resurrect our bodies to new life and he will do that because he loves you so we can live with him for eternity. So the touch here upon John, I think, was a touch of love, a touch of grace. To say, I I love you, John, remember who I am. Notice verse number 17, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. The first and the last is a description of God. God is before all things and after all things. He is without beginning and without end. That is the definition of who God is. He's is eternal. And the Living One is the name of God throughout the Old Testament. He is the Everlasting One. He is the Living God. That's the name for God you find in many texts of the Old Testament. So Jesus is saying here, I'm God, but also notice he says, I died. So verse 18, I'm the Living One, I'm God, but also I died. That's speaking about his humanity, that he took on flesh. He became the incarnate one. He lived a perfect life, and then he gave up his life on that cross. He died. And then notice what he says after that. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. This is the resurrection. And John was a witness to all of this. John was a witness to Jesus' death and to his bodily resurrection. this text indicates that John stopped fearing. He stopped fearing and was at peace as he continued to listen to Jesus and write down the words of Jesus. So again, what was it that took away John's fear of death and of judgment? It was faith that Jesus loved him, that Jesus is the Lord who loved him and secured victory over death. For him. His hope was in that, the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But church, this wasn't something that he just, at the age of 80 or 90 or however old he was, it wasn't something he just came up with. No, Christ taught him this while he was on earth. In fact, would you go back with me to Luke chapter number three? I want to show this to you. Luke chapter three. I want to look at briefly a couple events. Where we see that Christ taught him to no longer fear, but have faith that he is the Lord who loves him and secures victory over death. In Luke chapter 3, you have John the Baptist. Before John the Apostle was the Apostle, and he was just John. He was a follower of the Baptist, John the Baptist. John the Baptist, he preached On sin. Andrew and John followed John the Baptist. That means they would have listened to the preaching of John the Baptist. Imagine John the Baptist. Here's a guy wearing camel's hair out in the middle of the desert. And he stands up and he preaches to people. And he says, verse number 7, Luke 3, 7. This is John the Baptist said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized, you broad of vipers. That's quite a name, huh? You broad of vipers, you're like snakes who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. John the Baptist, he preached on sin. He preached on the holiness of God, and he preached on the wrath of God. He told people to recognize your sin, confess your sin in fear of God. I mean, John the Baptist saw soldiers there and the rest of this chapter talks about these different groups. He saw these soldiers and he said, you guys are a bunch of bullies. You need to confess that to God and be afraid of God's wrath if you don't. He preached to the tax collectors who were a bunch of thieves that you're a bunch of thieves. You need to fear God and the wrath that's coming upon you. He told the religious leaders that they're hypocrites you pretend to be religious, but deep down, you know that you're just living life for yourself. It's all facade. You need to fear God and his judgment. Look at verse number eight. And so this is what he said. John the Baptist says, bear fruits and keep him with repentance and do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. Don't say your religious heritage or your good deeds can remove your guilt. Well, I'm, I'm a religious person. I've been following this religion my whole life. This is what my mom and dad believed. I got baptized when I was a baby. I did this. I attended church. Don't say that. He's saying, those are excuses. Those don't add up. Those won't help you at all. Before a holy God, nothing you offer means anything. And in verse 9, he warns them that you're going to be cut off. You're going to be thrown into the fire of judgment. So again here, you see the proper response to a holy God is fear because judgment is real. Like what I'm talking about up here isn't just theoretical. It's not just theological. It's reality. Like when you lay in bed at night, And you wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning and that sin comes to your mind because you treated your wife in a certain way or you lied to a certain person or you're deceiving in this area. When that sin comes to your mind, that's God saying, you stand before me as guilty. God wants us to fear. He wants us to fear him and his holiness. But that's not where John the Baptist stopped. It wasn't just confess your sin. It was actually look to the Savior. Because John the Baptist's message was, Behold the Lamb of God. And he was pointing to Jesus Christ. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There's the one who has the solution. Yes, confess your sin, fear God, but then have faith in that one. He's the only one who can forgive. He's the only one who can remove the judgment of death and hell. And so at some point, John began to follow Christ. Go to Luke chapter five, and you can see where I think was really the the turning point for John and Luke five. John, Peter, James, John, Andrew, they had just spent the entire night fishing and they caught nothing they were tired. It was disappointing. It's the morning. They're on the side of the shore, and they're cleaning their nets. Remember, John was a brother of James, and their dad was Zebedee. He was pretty well off. They had even servants that helped them. So when you think about John, don't think of some kind of wimpy little man, right? And this guy was a man's man. He was a fisherman. Like, he took nets. He had muscles. His father was pretty well-to-do. It wasn't like uh, Jesus is a better option because it's going to be financially more viable for me. No, I mean, when he left that occupation, he left something that was in the family, something that was valuable in the world's eyes. Jesus walked down to that shore and a crowd was following him. So Jesus asked Peter, Peter, can you put your boat out there? Can I get in the boat? Can I preach the gospel? And remember what Jesus preached? What he preach? repent and believe the gospel. In other words, he's saying, fear God, fear God, there's judgment, recognize your sin and believe that God's the only one who can rescue you. That's the gospel. And so he did this from the boat. And then he got done preaching and he told Peter, he says, why don't you guys go out there, take your boat and cast your nets out there again. You know, Peter, oh, Lord, come on. Oh, we already did that. You know, here's the carpenter telling the fisherman how to fish. But Peter obeyed, and he went out there in that boat. He cast his net on the other side, and a miracle happened. That net began to fill up with so many fish. I mean, it was impossible that it just naturally happened. It was like Jesus called the fish in the sea to come to that net, and they recognized this is a miracle. I mean, Peter and Andrew called over, John, James, get in your boat, help us. And they went over there, and their boats were filling up so much with fish that they recognize something supernatural happened. Look down in Luke chapter five, verse number eight. Notice how Peter responded to this Christ who did this amazing work, his power. Verse eight, Peter, scripture tells us that he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me. Like I'm a sinful man Oh Lord. Notice this fear. Verse 9: For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And also, so were also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, What does he say? Do not be afraid. Don't fear anymore. Believe, right? From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything, all that money they left behind, all that worldly promise to follow Jesus. And that's when John left his parents. The comfort of that home left his business there and he gave all for Christ. He went all in for Jesus Christ. Now go to Luke chapter 8. Because one of Jesus' continual ministries with John, particularly Peter, James, and John, these three really close disciples of Jesus, is he really wanted these guys to not live by fear, but to live by faith that Jesus is the Lord, that he has the power to resurrect, that he has power over death. In Luke chapter eight, you see Jesus in a certain town, And a man, a leader of the synagogue, comes running up to Jesus. And this man is scared. He's afraid. I can imagine that he had tears in his eyes as he thought about what was happening in his home. And that was his daughter was dying. Have you ever had a child that's sick and you don't know if they're going to live? Maybe you've had a child who has passed. It's one of the worst things in the world, isn't it? And your heart is gripped with fear. So can you think about that right now? Here Jesus is inviting Peter, James, and John to experience the most fearful thing that a person could have in their life. And so what you see in Luke chapter 8, look at verse 50. And Jesus, on hearing this, that is that this girl had died, answered him. And so Jesus talks to this synagogue leader and answers him after he finds out that this girl died. Look at verse 50. Do not fear, but what? Only believe. And so here he's showing Peter, James, and John that, that you should not live and operate in your life by fear. Live by faith in Jesus Christ. Notice verse number 51, and when he came to the house, it's Jesus, he allowed no one to enter except Peter and John and James and the father and mother, and then look at verse number 54, but taking her by the hand, he called saying, child arise. Her hand would have been cold and lifeless. Her body was truly dead, but Jesus took her by the hand and Jesus resurrected her. I mean, imagine John viewing that right there. Everyone's laughing at Jesus outside because they're saying, oh, he's going to do what to her? She's dead. This is done. Let's have the funeral. And Jesus is saying, no, I can do something about this. I have power over death. Now go to Luke chapter 9, because this is another example of Jesus teaching John that you don't have to live by fear, but you live by faith that Jesus is the resurrected one. In Luke chapter nine and verse 28, we see that Peter and James and John, they go up to the mountain to pray. In verse 29, the Bible says that as Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothes became dazzling white. Here you have a preview of Revelation one. Jesus is transfigured in front of him, in front of them. He's glorified for a moment. Look at verse 34, what happens to the disciples as a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid. I mean, this is something that is supernatural. They saw the glory of Jesus, the holiness of Jesus, and these guys fell down in fear. What was Jesus doing here? Why did he do this? Appearing with him, if you look in verse 30, you can see Moses and Elijah were there. Verse 31, Jesus appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. So he's talking to these guys. And what's happening here? Jesus is giving them a glimpse of heaven. He's saying, this is is what heaven's like. I had someone ask me before the service. They said, do you think that when we are in glory, that we will recognize one another? And I said, absolutely. When they looked upon Elijah and Moses, they recognized them, right? At least Jesus did. And he relayed that to those men. We we will recognize one another in heaven. We will have, someday we will get glorified bodies and you will be who you are now in a resurrected body. I like to tell people this. You're not getting a new body in glory. You're getting a resurrected body. A new body would mean you might look like someone completely different. A resurrected body means you look like you, but glorified. So Jesus was giving them a preview of heaven, of his glory, of what's going to happen after his resurrection. He was giving them a preview of his love poured out and his power over death. I think Jesus' lessons of faith and love and power are most clearly seen, though, in the hours before his death. Would you go to John chapter 14? We'll end in the book of John here with this review of John's life John 14 is the account when Jesus was at the last table, last supper, the lord's table. He's speaking with his disciples. And who was right next to Jesus? Who's the closest one to Jesus? It's John. And Jesus is talking about departing. He's talking about dying, and they're getting sad. And so John 14:1, Jesus says, "Let not your hearts be troubled, like you're sad, you're afraid, Like, you're fearing me leaving. What's the response? Instead of fear, what should you do? Believe in God. Believe in the Father. Believe, he says, and also in me. What are you to believe about God? What are you to believe about me? Look at verse 6. He says, Jesus said to them, believe this. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I have power over death. I am the life. I give life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. You can't come to the Father through yourself, through a church, through another religious person. You can only come through Jesus. That's what Jesus said. And then go to Luke chapter, sorry, go to John chapter 18. Because later on that night, in John 18, they went to a garden, and there the disciples were to pray. And Jesus took Peter, James, and John a little farther and said, Guys, pray right now. And what do they do? They fell asleep. But Jesus eventually was taken away captive to the courtyard of the high priest. Look at John chapter 18, verse 15. The Bible says that Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. And that's John. He's speaking in a third person. Since that disciple was known to the high priest. So John was known to the high priest. His family was a prominent family. He entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. I want you to think about this because Jesus He saw the love, or John saw the love of Jesus for them in this moment because John witnessed Peter as he denied the Lord and Jesus looked with love at Peter. He would have seen Peter run away crying in sorrow because he sinned against Christ. He would have witnessed the false accusations against Jesus. He would have seen them blindfold Jesus and spit on Jesus and punch Jesus in the face. The next day, John probably witnessed the torture of Christ. He would have heard the crowds yell, crucify him. The soldiers flog Jesus and tear his flesh apart. You see, John, friends, was at the foot of that cross Look in John chapter 19, verse 25. John 19, 25 says that as this was taking place, John was there. John was at the foot of the cross. He saw those soldiers mock. He witnessed those religious leaders gloat. He saw the people scoff. and He saw Jesus hang there, gasping in silence with a heart of love and compassion for those people. And as I said earlier, what was his prayer on that cross? Said, Father, forgive them. That didn't give them forgiveness, by the way. It showed the heart of Jesus. This is why he's on the cross. He wants to save sinners. He died because he loves John witnessed that. So imagine that scene as John and his, John's mother and Jesus' mother and some other women are there at the foot of the cross. And they're watching Jesus suffer for sins. God's wrath is poured out upon Jesus. Look in John 19.30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. When he said, it is finished, Jesus was saying that I have paid for sin in full. They buried Jesus, and where were the disciples? They were hiding in fear. They were hiding in fear, and evidently John was with them as well, and he was scared. What were they scared of? They were scared to die. They were thinking the religious leaders are going to hunt them down and kill them as well. I mean, would you want to die like that? So they were afraid. John 20 records that the ladies led by Mary Magdalene, they had courage. They went to the tomb as the men cowered. Mary noticed the stone was rolled away. The body of Jesus was gone. Look in John 20 verse 2. So what did she do? Mary Magdalene, she ran and went to Simon Peter. So here are all these guys held up in this room. They're all, you know, secret knock at the door. Peter peeks his head out. The other disciple, that's John, verse 2, it says, and the one whom Jesus loved said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, that's John, and they were going toward the tomb." Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. John was younger. He was faster. He got there first. He looked in the tomb, verse 5, and stooped, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Verse 6, then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there, and the face cloth, which had been On Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in place by itself. That was intentional. Then the other disciple, that's John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. And notice what happened. He saw and he believed. John was the first disciple to believe. He didn't connect all the dots yet. But he knew something had happened here. His faith was changing, or his fear was changing to faith. Well, they went back to that room and kept hiding. Look down in verse number 19. The disciples are scared and confused on the evening of that day. So, this is Sunday night, the first day of the week. The doors being locked where the disciples were, were for what? For fear of the Jews. So, they're afraid still that they're going to die. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side and then. The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. The disciples saw Jesus risen again. He's alive and they believed. And what turned their fear to faith, their anxiety to peace? What turned sadness to gladness and cowardness to courage? It was that they saw that it was real. Jesus Christ really did die, and he truly rose again, and they believed. They believe that Jesus has the power over death. They believed that if they went out there, preached the gospel, and they died, that it's instant Jesus. It's instant glory. It's instant life forever. So now let's go back to Revelation 1 and what's end there. Revelation 1. For 40 days, Jesus walked, talked among the disciples, and then he ascended to heaven. 60 years plus passed after Christ's ascension. John was in the last years of his life. And verse number 19 says that he saw Jesus and he again feared until his hand, Christ's hand, was put on him and he said, I am the first. Look at verse number 19. I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And notice this last part I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus touched him in love and reminded John who he was. I'm the resurrected Lord. And guess what? I have the keys of death and Hades. I have a key right here in my pocket. This is a key to my car. Back at the time of Christ and of John here, someone who had a key, it represented not just access, but also that they were the owner of that. And so I have a key, that represents I have access, I could have stolen it, I guess, but I actually did buy that vehicle out there. But it represents I have access, but also I'm the owner. And friends, Jesus Christ, he is the owner of death and Hades. Yes, death might take your body, your soul might be separated from your body, But Jesus, he has the ultimate decision on your destiny. And if you are in Jesus Christ, he guarantees, because you have believed in him, that you have eternal life. Are you tempted to fear? There's a lot to fear in this world, isn't there? We often fear trials and difficulties. Maybe you even fear death. But friends, the scripture tells us you must not fear, but you must have faith. Jesus is the Lord. He loves you. He died for you, and he rose again. And those of us who are believing in him, we have the assurance that we have life. Our souls are alive, and someday our body will be brought back Life and friend, if you are in here and you don't know Christ, you don't have that assurance, and you should fear that last breath. And so, our plea to you: we are ambassadors of Christ, and we plead with you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to him. He came, he's he came in love and he wants to forgive. And all you have to do is call upon him. Confess your sin, confess that he's the savior, he's the Lord. And he promises he will touch your soul with love and bring it to life. And you have, you will have eternal life. Let's pray.